VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Did you know that there are some MAGA rallies happening around America now? Congressman Matt Gates will join us from the Mesa, Arizona site of tonight's America First rally. And there's a new MAGA wave coming in the 2022 midterms, or a more appropriate question might be to ask, how big will the MAGA wave be in 2022? The infamous gun-toting Mark McCloskey faced down the mob, and now he's going to face down the swamp. He's running for the Senate, and he's here with us tonight. And George Soros has been funding anti-American causes for years, but is there a new Soros with just as much money to burn? Alex Marlowe from Breitbart News is here to fill us in. All of that and more tonight on Dr. Gina Primetime. Why does the left hate Israel? It's a question that's really bothered me ever since I saw the first bit of anti-Semitism come from the mouths of liberals when I was back in college. It's such an odd phenomenon if you think about it. Maybe it's because of Christianity's link to Judaism and to Israel. We all know the left despises Christianity and they actually took God out of their platform at the DNC. So maybe that's part of it. Although most Jewish Americans do tend to be leftists. So why would these leftists in particular denounce their own ethnic homeland? They abide by the Torah that teaches them that Israel is their promised land, but American Jewish leftists act as though they'd love to see every Jew expelled from Israel and that land be handed to the Arabs and renamed Palestine. The leftists' favorite and most harsh criticism for a conservative is to call them, you know, you've been called it, a Nazi. They call Donald Trump Hitler. They called all of us Hitler at one time or another. They've called us all Nazis, too. If they don't like something they're do you're doing, they jump right on that. Leftists know what Adolf Hitler and the Nazis did to the Jews. So why then are leftists suddenly on the side of Israel's enemies? Hitler was allied with Islamic countries in the Second World War, and they were glad to join up with Hitler and to help destroy the Jews and to fight evil Brits and Americans. At least that's how they thought of us. Uh, there's a famous picture of Hitler meeting with the Islamic Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And their shared goal was to make sure that no Jew ever set foot in Jerusalem again and that the British rule of the Holy Land would be replaced with Nazi rule. Also, the left preaches to us about preserving democracy and how there is nothing more sacred than democracy. And even though we are a republic, I guess that's beside the point. We hear them praise, democracy, democracy, democracy. So you would think that the only Middle Eastern democracy would get their support. But no, they support the enemies of democracy in their crusade against Israel. Again, it's mind-boggling. If you really put it all on a map, it, it can be very confusing. So now, is it possible that the left's disdain for Israel is linked to its success? Israel, as we know it now, has existed for only 73 years and it's become a superpower. Their economy flourishes. flourishes. They are winners. And we like winning on our side. Do you like winning? Then maybe you like Israel. Trump warned us during his time in the White House that we might get tired of winning. And that really upset the left as they, for some reason, really enjoy being losers on the world stage. 
Biden looks like a bumbling fool in the eyes of the rest of the world, and the left, for some odd reason, seems to enjoy that. Now, in all my years of studying the psychology of politics, the left's unhinged hatred of Israel has been one of the most puzzling things I've ever examined in the American political psychological dynamic. And we are going to revisit this coming up a little later on in the show. Maybe, just maybe, we can crack the code, so you're going to want to stay with us. But first, let's check in with the crew on the Save America Freedom Tour. The bus rolled into Lynchburg, Virginia at Liberty University, and Ben Burkwam joins us now. Great to see you, Ben. Give us an update. We are on the road again. Had an amazing event today <laughs> in uh, Lynchburg at Liberty University. I got to tell you, uh, Dave Bratt is incredible, and the folks that came out there were just, it was just uh, awesome. Phil Klein joined us there as well. Uh, we actually had a, a little preview from these guys behind me. You can see uh, Dave Bray right there and my boy Jeremy Harrell right there. We had a little preview of what's to come tomorrow uh, when we get to Tennessee, to Cookville, Tennessee. They're going to be doing a concert. So this is our second, uh, second stop on our second leg of our Save America Freedom Tour. We were here at Liberty University and tomorrow we'll be in Cookville, Tennessee for the third stop and it's going to be incredible it's going to be an hour-long special uh, and followed by another hour of speakers and then a half hour uh, uh, concert with uh, dave bray and jeremy harold it's going to be incredible but so far it's been amazing it's just been one awesome awesome trip okay now ben i have to tell you a couple things one is first time i ever broke down on an rv trip was in cookville tennessee so I'm just going to hope that has no bearing on your trip whatsoever. And I have to tell you something else. Every time I see you guys, you're partying, you're singing. You're, it, it doesn't look like you're getting a lot of work done, I'm not going to lie. And that bus is looking more like a fraternity house <laughs> than a bus. So I know you're having a great time. Um, and I know you are just rekindling that American spirit in everybody who's getting to meet with you and visit with you and hear the great music and the great speeches and all the things taking place on your tour. So I'm really, really excited for you, Ben. And um, and I'm and I'm obviously we're going to bring you back on the show on uh, Monday. What are you going to have for us? Well, so we're going to talk about what we saw in Tennessee. And by the way, just real quick to that point, it is fun to be a conservative. It is fun to be a patriot. It is fun to love liberty. It is not fun to be a miserable, left, miserable leftist Democrat. Uh, it, you know, we are blessed And angry. By God to Don't be forget Americans. angry. They're angry. always angry. Yes. yes. Always angry. No, it's time, it's time to love America again. It's time to love life again. If you love those things, you can't be a Democrat anymore. You got to stand up. You can't be a leftist. You got to be a patriot. So we have fun because God is in us. God shines through us. And then that shines out into the world and you can't help but have fun. So Monday, we will be uh, having uh, a recap from what we had this weekend. And then I've got a really exciting trip I'm going to be taking next week um, to tech. I'll be back in Texas on the border later on in the week. So stay tuned for that. But right now we're going to be we're heading down to Cookville, Tennessee. For anyone who's in the area, we'll be at the Cookville uh, Community Center tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Central Time, 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You guys do not want to miss it. What's that great quote? I believe it's by Daniel Boone. You can all go to hell. I'm going to Texas. Is that your motto for Monday? <laughs> there you go. 
There you go. All right, Ben. Well, you always inspire us. Thank you so much. Hello to everybody there on the bus. God bless you guys. Safe travels. And don't break down in Cookville because I'm telling you what, there's an auto body shop that are, they are, they are roadside thieves. So don't break down there. That's my word to the well, wise. I, we're, we're praying the whole way. So we're praying we don't have the same fate you had in Cookville. <laughs> I'm sure you won't. Ben, thanks so much. Thanks, Dr. G. All right. Now, as you know, there are some election audits happening around the country, or you may not know unless you watch this network, because I'm not seeing anything about it on the other networks, if I'm being honest. Here at RAV and on Dr. Gina Primetime, we keep our eyes on the audits, because guess what? It matters if we had a fair election. So we're going to head out to Pembroke, New Hampshire. There's an election audit happening there. And our own Heather Mullins is on the ground, as she always is, pitbulling it all. Heather, what's the latest there? All right, Gina. So we actually got some good stuff for today, some information. They finished their hand recount portion, which is phase two of this New Hampshire audit. The hand recount that was just completed here, the results of that are very similar to the hand recount they initially did back on November 12th. Now, what this means is that the official results that were submitted that came from the voting machines are not reliable. Now, the next phase of this, this audit process is going to be the expert team troubleshooting and trying to figure out what the contributing factors were to, to that discrepancy. So we now know that the numbers the machine gave us were wrong after two hand recounts corroborated the same information. So moving forward, we really just got to figure out what caused this and I'm going to be watching it closely. And, uh, you know, the other big update, if you want me to talk about it, Georgia had a big breakthrough today, Gina. Yes, tell us. All right, so this is actually a huge win for us because, as you guys know, Voter GA has been fighting to get access to the physical ballots of Fulton County, the absentee mail-in ballots there. And originally, the judge seemed like that's the direction he was going in until the Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's office submitted an amicus brief that basically said a number of things, including if anybody other than Fulton County election officials touched those ballots, it would be a felony. So that, you know, I'm concerned to some people, is the, is the judge going to now allow us to see these ballots? So what he ultimately decided today was he's going to order Fulton County election officials to physically handle the ballots but in the presence of the plaintiff. So the first thing that he's authorized now is for them to scan all of the ballots and provide 600 VPI digital images to the plaintiff to do in a forensic analysis because they argue that anything less than 600 VPI is not enough for them to do what they need to do, which is actually interesting because here in New Hampshire, the audit team originally was going to take 600 VPI images of their ballots, but because of how long it took them to do that, they lowered it to 300 VPI, which has actually caused some concerns here that that level is not going to be enough for them to see what they need to see. So okay, Heather, I'm sorry. Back up and just remind our audience for a second what VPI is. So VPI is like the image quality, right? You know, it's basically the difference between a blurry image and like an HD image. And so it's, it's the spectrum of quality. And so a lot of the experts in the industry say 600 VPI is what is needed to do a comprehensive forensic analysis on the ballot. So originally here in New Hampshire, they were going to do feeding it through the scanners they had chosen. It was taking too long. So Mark Lindeman of Verified Voting went in, lowered the VPI level to 300, so the remaining ballots were of lower quality. So people here in New Hampshire are not happy about that. 
whereas the judge in Georgia just authorized 150,000 plus ballots to be scanned in at 600 BPI. So we'll definitely be getting some answers in Georgia. Wow, this is fascinating stuff. I cannot believe we are just not seeing this on other media. It is astonishing to me. I flip around and check at other, com other conservative media sites and I'm not seeing any of this, Heather. Thank you so much again, once again, for being on top of this. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Dr. Gina. Coming up, Mark McCloskey and his wife, you remember them. They became MAGA heroes when they faced down that mob with their guns in front of their St. Louis home. And now he's running for the U.S. Senate. Is he ready to take on the swamp after he's taken on the mob? Well, we're going to ask him. Mark McCloskey, coming up next on Dr. Gina Prata. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, now I may be a Florida girl, but my home state for most of my life was Missouri. And something really amazing is happening in that state right now. It's been a few years in the making. Just a few years ago, when I lived in St. Louis, we considered Missouri a swing state. My husband was a state representative and then a state senator, but he was in the minority for much of his time in the Missouri state capitol. That state used to be a bellwether state. It could go either way in a presidential election, and it was thought of as a purple state, at least until recently. But now, after the MAGA movement has taken hold, Democrats have little to no chance of winning statewide in the great state of Missouri. And now that the old guard Republicans are getting out of the way, some political outsiders are stepping up. Missouri GOP Senator Roy Blunt is retiring, so that seat is ready to be filled with a tried and true America First MAGA patriot. And several have thrown their hats in the ring to run. One of them is with me now, Mark McCloskey. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming back. Oh, thanks for having me again. Mark, you faced down the mob outside your St. Louis home, but are you ready for the D.C. swamp? Because that's a whole new brand of monster, isn't it? Well, you know, it's it's true. I mean, I uh, somebody said I ought to just go outside and drive nails through my feet. It'd be more fun. <laughs> I can see why someone would say that. But, you know, before the Trump era, I would have asked you what your experience was in governing or running for office. But that seems like almost an... I don't know, outdated question now that I think most people are at a point where they prefer outsiders who have never run for office before. Is, is that what you're finding? Do voters, do voters tend to like that you're not a politician, so to speak? Yeah, and you know, when we were on the, uh, the Trump campaign and, and uh, rallying around the country, what everybody was saying was they're sick and tired of career politicians and posers and egotists, that they wanted somebody who was, wasn't afraid to go in and say what was true stand up for the people regardless of the cost personally or socially or economically and really wanted a, a sea change in the way government is done and that's really what what caused us to get into this race i mean it's it's a post-political time in america you can't count on the government to protect your rights obviously big tech big corporations the swamp they're not there to protect you they're they're there to oppress you now and uh, everybody needs to make a personal commitment to stand up and fight for their own freedoms. And those same people are just clamoring for somebody who's an outsider 
who isn't beholden to anybody, doesn't have any lobbyist ties, doesn't have any desire to climb the ladder of, of politics, just somebody who's willing to stand up for the God-given rights we all have. What was the moment this occurred to you, that maybe you should run for office? Is this something you ever considered before the mob descended on your home? And if not, at what point after the mob descended upon your home did you think, you know, maybe I'm the one that has to step up and throw my hat in there? Well, I'm a lifelong Republican. I had never thought about running for office. When, uh, when the mob hit our house on June the 28th, that was one thing. When they came back on July the 3rd with a specific purpose of burning down the house and killing us, and we had the bigger standoff, that was kind of a bellwether change in our life. The president that day made his speech at, at uh, Mount Rushmore, and I didn't get a chance to hear it because I was a little busy. But on the 4th, I listened to his speech, and he talked about defending America against Marxist extremism. And then the news media, the mainstream Marxist press, reported that as being the most divisive speech a president could give. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, you know, boy, you know, when fighting Marxist extremism in this country is considered divisive, like we're supposed to live together in harmony with the people that seek to destroy us in our way of living and our lifestyle and our culture, there's something seriously wrong here. And we decided to just put our lives on hold and campaign for the president. And then once, at least uh, officially, things didn't work out the way we hoped, and we're now facing a Biden administration, we continue to campaign and speak around the state and, and uh, do functions in, in support of our constitutional rights and in support of America First agenda. And it just became apparent that just speaking about it wasn't going to be enough, that we had an opportunity to make a real difference. And then when Senator Blunt announced that he wasn't going to run for re-election, people started to call and suggest that we jump into that race. And you know, never having been a politician, maybe I'm naive, but uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of support, uh, an awful lot of people in Missouri and around the country and virtually every country in Europe, uh, all 50 United States, South America, Australia, New Zealand, even Russia we've gotten support from. Hate to say that because I'm sure the, uh, the left will eat me alive for saying we've gotten support from Russia, but just uh, from cards and letters. And uh, there is a general outcry out there to, to continue the Trump movement to uh, get away from this, this train wreck disaster of the Biden administration and get back to some just good old fashioned America, the way we all knew it, the way we grew up. And how did you decide you or your wife? Because I don't know, she's pretty tough out there with that little gun in her hand standing there defending her house. I, I love that that uh, that whole thing, too. I was proud of her. I don't even know her, but I was just proud of, of her just being a woman and coming out there. I think you guys were interrupted during dinner, if I remember correctly, the most outrageous thing. I know your neighborhood very well. As I said, I spent much of my life in St. Louis. Um, so how come you and not her? How did that conversation go? I don't know. I guess I had the, the bigger gun. But she got an dumbass little Brico pistol and went out there in front of the crowd. And she was out there in it. I mean, I, I was standing up on the porch. I was, you know, had some, some safety of distance. But then she's out there in front of me waving at that little Brico over her head. And uh, so I had to go out there and join her. But boy, she went right into the mix. So yeah, maybe she'd be the better senator. But she, yeah, she, <laughs> she has chosen well, otherwise. 
If you're anything like my husband and I, it'll be a partnership anyway, I'm sure. There are a lot of candidates getting into this race, Mark. Really great candidates, actually, friends of mine also. Um, primaries are tough. I've been through Missouri primaries. Um, you might want to shoot yourself in both feet instead of <laughs> instead of running. Whoever your friend was that pointed that out is not a bad observation. Um, how do you see this primary playing out? And, and, and especially, I want to talk about in terms of the voting block and how you think you can win. Well, I think the, uh, the thing that distinguishes my campaign is that I am a total outsider. I have no political ambition. I have no career political background. I've just been a, you know, a lawyer for the last 36 years. Uh, but we, uh, we've been in touch with the people. I mean, since we started campaigning for the president last fall, and even more so since the election has been over, and we've been doing events at the state capitol in the rotunda, and then at the various Republican Lincoln-Reagan days, having an opportunity to just go out there and, and, and mix with the people of Missouri. Uh, we have gotten a tremendous reception. People are just And I think we represent that change. I can, I, you know, I, I hate to sound like a parody of my own commercial, but I've got, I've got no uh, ties that control me. I've got no baggage that I carry with me. And to, to quote a recently uh, deceased friend of mine, I'm not subject to intimidation. And that, that, I think, is what people respect. It seems like you are definitely not subject to intimidation or you wouldn't be doing this, especially after everything you've been through. Mark McCloskey, do tell your wife uh, we said hello. And thank you so much for being here. Best of luck to you. Oh, thank you. And if anybody needs to uh, uh, some contact information or wants to help us out, thinks we're doing the right thing, go to McCloskeyforsenate.com. Give five, ten bucks, whatever you can afford. Uh, if you like what I'm doing, Get on board and support us, and uh, we'll win this thing. All righty. You got it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, coming up next, why does the left despise Israel? Have you ever wondered? If you want a glimpse into the mind of the left, you won't want to miss what we found out about this. Stick around. More Dr. Gina Primetime after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. After 11 days of hostilities between Israel and Hamas terrorists, a ceasefire has been declared and the rockets have stopped flying for now. Sadly, 232 are dead in Gaza and 12 were killed in Israel. And our friend Gal Kalev has a report from Israel. Gal? Hi, Gina. I'm here on Mount Zion by Zion Gate in the old city of Jerusalem. This morning, a ceasefire was announced after 11 days of fighting during which Hamas, Hamas have launched over 4,300 rockets and missiles in Israel. It was able to incite some of the Arab populations in Israel against Jews, uh, including lynching and attacks on Jewish on property, something we haven't seen in a long while. Uh, they were able to chill the peace process we're having with our Arab neighbors. Uh, but now there's a ceasefire. There's not been any uh, rockets or fire from Hamas since this morning. Uh, but there's something that stayed and that stays, and that is the uh, outrageous anti-Israeli incitement that we have seen over the last 11 days on social media, on mainstream media, even among some politicians and diplomats. The um, uh, degree of hatred 
and the degree of hypocrisy that we have seen is not something that can be taken lightly. Uh, the suggestion that Israel's uh, uh, right to defend itself, to strike at Hamas, amounts to genocide, or the suggestion by some uh, comedians uh, that we should not even fire at Hamas, that we should just trust our uh, defense operation that usually works but sometimes does not and people get killed. Uh, or even the ludicrous idea that the eviction of six Palestinian families in a property dispute amounts to ethnic cleansing. All of those became facts. You couldn't argue them. People would just get blocked and canceled if they tried to argue that Israel is not committing ethnic cleansing or genocide. Uh, and uh, the poison that has been spread uh, is something that we will need, that stays with us and we will need to take a look. We've seen this over the centuries. Uh, we're seeing it now. Uh, and uh, we can discuss uh, what is the repercussions another time. But now, Gina, it is uh, almost Shabbat here in Jerusalem. Uh, so, uh, as we say here, Shabbat Shalom uh, from the City of Peace uh, and sending you all blessings from Jerusalem. Back to you, Gina. Thank you so much for that report, Gob. All right, now out to Maricopa County, Arizona, to the site of the America First rally happening there very soon. Congressman Matt Gates will take the stage there very soon, and he is with us right now. Congressman, great to see you. What's the mood there today? Well, we are excited about the great work of the Arizona Senate to demand election integrity, but there's also troubling news coming out of the Biden Justice Department, Dr. Gina. Actually, the Civil Rights Division is trying to threaten those in Arizona who are working toward this audit to determine whether or not all of the ballots actually counted were intended to be cast. It's really important people understand the difference between a recount and an audit. A recount merely ascertains whether or not the ballots that were submitted were tabulated correctly, whereas in an audit we can actually decide, hey, was there someone who never intended to cast a vote, but maybe their ballot was picked up in the mail or in some drop box or in some other fraudulent way and then cast as if it was legitimate, lawful, and legal. And if this produces evidence of systemic fraud in Arizona, it is my expectation that we will be on to Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan to ensure that in elections that are coming up, that we actually have the verification and the ID requirements in place so that the right winner is ultimately taking the oath of office. Right, because even though people are so fired up about the next election, and I think if the election were to happen today and we had an honest election, um, there's just no question this is an America first country. But we're also very concerned about these audits. Do you think we can even move forward? Can we have a 2022 election with any real success without uh, first having a successful audit? Well, we need a successful audit, and then we actually need the audit to be able to produce policy reforms. That's why I'm so proud of my state, Florida. We've actually strengthened identification requirements, and we've reduced the opportunity for fraud in the mailbox. You know, people forget the 2020 election was so aberrational. It was the first time in America's history where the mailbox turned out to beat the ballot box. And so now we want to make sure that we don't have millions of unaccounted for ballots swirling around the system. So the audit's important, but then we have to have the follow through like we've seen in Florida, like we've seen in the state of Georgia, where actually they're trying to clean up their elections and get them in the right posture. And the good news is 
It's very doable. I mean, I remember the hanging chads in Florida. I think they were cutting open alligators and finding votes for Al Gore back in the early <laughs> 2000s. But the good news is that if you get the right people in place, if you put the right laws in place, then we can have elections that are trusted. And that is essential to having a healthy representative government. I'm curious, Matt, because I always wonder um, when the woke are really going to wake up, right? So I wonder what kind of people you're getting. I know people flock to your rallies. You're a firebrand. People love to just to hear what you have to say, um, even if it's just dinner. Um, but I just wonder, what are you hearing from people? Are you, are you, are you seeing any of the people who maybe weren't as supportive of conservative politics before, but now realize that we're on the side of honest elections because we really are. This should be a bipartisan issue, but it really has become about Democrats, dishonest election, Republicans, honest elections. I mean, unfortunately, that's where we are in America today. Stacey Abrams and George Soros and Eric Holder mechanized the laundering of ballots. They're very good at it, and they don't want the rules to change that have inured to their benefit. But I could tell you from what I see in the eyes of these patriots who show up in Wyoming, who show up in Florida and here in Arizona, they are inspirational about the future. They believe that we actually can turn this country around and that we don't have to go on the path of decline with Joe Biden. He is obviously willing to oversee managed decline of America, and we're not here for that. We're not going to stand for it, and it's my expectation that 2022 is going to be a red wave election setting up for a return of probably Donald Trump to the White House. And I know that we want everyone to go to these rallies and we want everyone to be all fired up, but I know you well enough to know you're giving action steps. You want these people out there working hand in hand with you to get this done. So running for local office um, and, and showing up to the rallies for sure, um, writing their congressmen who maybe aren't paying attention like you are. What else can people be doing, congressman? I think we have to look at the Tea Party playbook from 2010. We need better oh. candidates. We need a more inspired message. We need the grassroots to show up. You know, the big tech oligarchs, they want to cancel our ability to communicate online, but you cannot cancel a rally like this when a thousand people show up demanding better not only of their government, but of the Republican Party. They cannot be ignored. And we have to continue to fight for those America first principles, even within the Republican Party. There are people like Liz Cheney out there who want to revert back to the old days of the Republican Party. I like this new forward-thinking Republicanism. I'm a Donald Trump Republican, and I think that this energy shows that he remains the true leader of our movement. That's awesome. All right. Congressman Gates, how can people find where all your rallies are? I'm sure there's a website. Tell us. Go to mattgates.com backslash rally, and you can sign up on mattgates.com for regular updates. On the 27th, we're going to be in Dalton, Georgia. There's a lot going on in Georgia that still needs to be fixed. We'll be announcing other rally dates thereafter. And I'm so excited to be touring this great country with such a great champion like Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. So go to mattgates.com and you won't miss any of the action. All right, Congressman Matt Gates, there you have it. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, Dr. Gina. And have a great rally. All right, coming up. There's a brand new leftist billionaire on the scene pumping money into political causes. You should be aware. Is this a brand new female? 
uh, and is she the next George Soros? That's next right here on Dr. Tina Primetime. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And you know what that stinger means. It means it's time for news you didn't know. Here, as always, from our RAV TV headquarters in Denver, Colorado, our own Jessica Rivera. Jessica, great to have you with us today. Thank you, Dr. Gina. And over the past 50 years, Dr. Gina, the federal government has been paying people to adopt wild Mustangs. But records are now showing that many of these supposedly protected horses have gone to slaughter. How the process works is, the Bureau of Land Management rounds up these wild Mustangs and then sends them to auction. At the auction, anyone who adopts one of these wild horses gets a check for $1,000. The horses are then supposed to be protected by the government and the buyer. But like many well-intended government programs, people have found a way to take advantage and are stealing from taxpayers. Many of these buyers then turn around and sell the horses as soon as they get that check to slaughterhouses making even more money on these poor animals. But Dr. Gina, what is most disturbing about the situation is lawyers for the American Wild Horse Campaign, an advocacy group, have been tracking the program and they say the government is laundering horses, knowing full well that these horses are headed to slaughter. Whoa. But it's a way for the government to keep its hands clean. Of course, the government denies it, but how can they seriously not be held responsible for the program's major failure when they never have put together a tracking system for the horses once they're adopted? Now, whether you are for or against saving wild mustangs, horses, it's not really the point in this story because that's a whole other topic. But what Americans need to know is this is just another federal government program that is a waste of 80 to $90 million, close to a billion dollars a year which they know is not working for the last 50 years, yet they continue to use taxpayer money to fund it. And it's really, really sad. And these people know that they get away with it. So this is why it continues. This is so sad, Jessica. And I think so often, you know, conservatives are misrepresented as somehow being anti uh, you, you know, uh, animal, when in fact I think quite the opposite is true. This is the kind of thing that really does tug at my heartstrings. And when you and when you mention it, how hard is it to just simply put a chip inside of an animal? You know, I do the show every night with my little friend in my lap, and she's chipped, my little dog, um, and, and my dogs are chipped. This is a very inexpensive procedure. As I understand it, the cost of a chip is around 5 to $10, maybe less at this point, because I think those costs continue to go down as technology advances. So why not just chip the horses and then keep track of them and check in on them and periodically make sure death is by natural causes, those kinds of things, like they do so often on people, on Americans, uh, when they're doing various things like, I don't know, IRS tax audits. They seem to be able to keep track of people that way don't they they do and it's so simple I think that that's what this these group of lawyers has said it's so simple to have finished the process of tracking that they've like just let it go 
hoping that people will just be like, hey, you know, it's not a big deal because there's only a certain population that really is in tune with how this all works. But the thing is this, is that people are getting wind of it, animal activists, and it's really sad. And it's just another way for the government to continue getting taxpayer money, knowing a, a program doesn't work and being able to just basically launder um, instead of just saying, hey, look, this is, we need to, you know, get so many of these horses out, blah, 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 the whole situation. They don't want their hands on it. And so this is what they've done. And people have, you know, it, it's gotten a lot more no, notoriety. It's in the headlines and people are upset about it. And I agree because if you want to do something, do it correctly and don't try and take from the taxpayers in the Jessica, process. Jessica, do we know how much Pardon me. Do we know how much money we're talking about here per year, for example? So the Congress, so Congress gives them. Uh, I think in 2020 they gave them 90 million dollars, close to a billion dollars for this project. Whoa. For yes, exactly. And um, like I said, but the reason why a lot of people don't know about this project is because you're not going to really know unless you're in like a rural area. The reason why it even sure. came to my attention is because I'm in Colorado and right. BLM has a huge amount of property here. And so it came to my attention in that regard. But if you're in California or you're in, uh, you know, Florida in certain areas or you're, you know, in certain areas that aren't so rural, in you know metropolises right, right, right. you're not going to know that this takes place and you may not care but you do care when it comes to your taxpayer funded money knowing that 50 years should tell you if a system works and it doesn't just uh, such a perfect example of how government usually screws everything up this could be done through private charities and probably for a lot less money and a lot more effectively and just to clarify blm is bureau of land management yes. not Black Lives Matter. I just want to say that because that's so in the news these days. Um, Jessica, that certainly is news we didn't know. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dr. Gina. Have a great weekend. You do the same. All right, for a long time, George Soros has been pouring money into leftist political causes, but now there's a new billionaire in town who has plenty of money to burn and a net worth more than double George Soros. The story over at Breitbart News has this headline, the new Soros Alex Marlowe's media expose reveals immense secret power of tech heiress Lorene Powell Jobs and Alex Marlowe, editor-in-chief at Breitbart News and the author of Breaking the News joins us now. Alex, great to see you. I want you to bring us good news though. <laughs> I don't want to hear about another billionaire who's going to be pouring money into leftist politics, but this is something that we need to know about and it certainly isn't something that was on my radar. Tell us. Yeah, there's a fair bit of good news in the book, and thanks for having me, Dr. Gina, but this one is not good news. Uh, I was able to, I think, unmask and reveal a secret mega power on the Democrat side of the aisle, this lady named Lorene Powell Jobs. Now, if you look her up online, you'll probably see that she is a woman in tech or a philanthropist, but that's not really it. She married Steve Jobs, the Apple guru yeah. and CEO who also invented Pixar, which a lot of people forget, and then he yes. passed away too young from cancer and she inherited his money. And so she's worth about 20 billion, maybe a little less. And what is she doing with the money? She is funding pretty much the entirety of the Democrat establishment. First of all, she funds the prestige media. So she funds the Atlantic and she uses this a group called the Emerson Collective, which functions as her own personal trust. 
it's a hybrid of philanthropy and uh, investing, which basically means if it makes money, it becomes investing, and if it loses money, you call it philanthropy, and all of this gets shielded, so certain things get shielded from the government, so they don't totally know what's going on. I think it's murky by design. So she funds The Atlantic, she funds Axios, but she also funds now this news, which is a pugilistic left-wing viral video site designed of millennials. She funds Mother Jones and ProPublica, which are investigative outlets that are wildly on the left. They do some good work, but they're really, really left. But then she also funds this thing called the Courier Newsroom through a group called Acronym. And all this stuff is in the book and online at Breitbart.com. But what you need to know about the Courier Newsroom is their literal fake news, their Democrat propaganda, which is laundered into local news. And she funds every element of this. Not to mention, wow. she's given literally hundreds of donations to Democrats and is seen as a tight personal friend with Kamala Harris. You might have wondered why Kamala Harris got put in the ticket after getting, I think, one delegate, I think it was, uh, in the primaries. Well, who knows? Maybe we've got your answer. Suddenly it all seems to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Now, another story you posted over at Breitbart that is also in your book is about NBC's uh, Chuck Todd, and he was actually renting a place to senator and presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar, and he never disclosed it. Alex, if this happened on the other side, I hate to sound like a broken record, but we get so used to this double standard, right? Well, I think it'd be an investigation. People would be investigated, and you'd sure. be looking at whether or not this is some sort of uh, illegal behavior. I'm not saying it is illegal. Uh, Chuck Todd's allowed to rent out his place to whomever he pleases. Uh, but the fact that he, in the D.C. area, this is Arlington, Virginia, where I call home, the fact that you couldn't get another tenant, it had to be a U.S. senator who you cover all the time is so ridiculously absurd. And that Amy Globachar was cutting checks to Chuck Todd on a monthly basis is something that is a, if I wrote that in a Hollywood script, uh, you guys would have sent it back saying, this is too ridiculous, this could never happen. <laughs> but if you look at yep. the Todd family, uh, Todd's wife also is a major Democrat strategist. She's been a consultant for Bernie Sanders 2016 and 2020 um, uh, races. Her company getting about two and a half million dollars in all over those two election cycles, which is a lot of money for a socialist. I, I don't have any socialist benefactors uh, giving me two and a half million dollars, which irony is not lost on us uh, at Breitbart. But the bottom line is, is that he did seven or eight interviews with her during the campaign. Not once did he disclose that he that she was literally cutting him checks at one time for an extended period of time. Unbelievable. You know, the more you know about Washington, D.C. and the Beltway and the media and the way things work, um, the more it tends to make sense. And this is I have to say, I just I'm so happy that and I am just going to take a moment to just to do my own thing here um, because I'm so happy that you at Breitbart are continuing the legacy of my good friend Andrew. I just have to take a moment to say that I was um, one of your friends there when I requested you to come on the show said, oh, I didn't know you were an OG, an original gangster of Breitbart, but it's true. I was one of the very first writers there, and uh, we were there at the forefront of the Tea Party and went and gave speeches alongside Andrew. And these kinds of stories, Alex, first of all, are lost on media today by and large. I try to hire people, you know, we try to hire people here that do this kind of investigative stuff. But this was Andrew's passion, and this is it was lost then, it's really lost now. And I am so glad, so glad that you are keeping up that Breitbart legacy and have not become the fluff that so much of news has become 
uh, today, and I, I just think this is this is incredibly important stuff. I remember Andrew calling me at two in the morning or five in the morning or just crazy times a day because he kept no real clock like like other people do, and he was on a story, you know, and when it was in his head, he was going with it, and he wanted to know if I knew this or that, or if I would follow up or research this or that, and it was just he, he was so so passionate about it. And I really see that in you, and I'm and I'm so thankful for that. Um, before I move on, I just want a chance to ask you, um, what are the other great things about this book? Because I'm hearing incredible critical analysis of this book. Everybody's really raving about it. I can't wait to read it. I haven't yet. Um, but do tell us, what else are you excited about in your book? Well, first of all, um, all praise to Andrew, and I love that you got to relay that story to the audience because everyone who got to know Andrew has a great story like that. And he really yeah. was so magnanimous and so generous with his time and his insights. And he was a true giant. And so much of the conservative movement today, I really think uh, uh, we all owe so much to Andrew, maybe me more than anyone. So I uh, always I will take the time to sing Andrew's praises. And he's got a terrific book everyone should read called Righteous Indignation if they want to get to know him better. Um, yes. But to your point about journalism, how about this for a big thing in the book? It's got 1,200 endnotes, which is a lot, over 100 mm. pages worth. So. That's specifically for the fake news fact checkers who would like to prove that the claims in the book are false. Well, you can go through the 1,200 endnotes I provided for you right in the back so you know exactly where I got uh, the stories. <laughs> this book, it has analysis in it, but that's not the point. The point is to break news and to show exactly what's happening with our corporate media. And I think it's effective, and I hope people give me a chance and check it out. I'm excited about it. All right, Alex. My monologue earlier was about why the left hates Israel. And I do want to get your input because it's puzzling to me. I've studied the intermix of psychology and politics my entire adult life. Uh, most things in politics do make sense to me for the reasons that you've stated in your book and that you've written about uh, for your whole life, um, being that most, most of what happens in politics is based on basic psychology. Like, people do things for the most basic of reasons. Lust, money, you know, the power, those kinds of things. Um, but it doesn't make any sense to me because Democrats say they love democracy. You hear them repeat that word over and over again. And then they despise right. the only democracy in the Middle East. What wisdom can you, can you give me here? Yeah, this is one that is a very complex issue and one I've thought about a lot and almost impossible to sum up in, in a quick TV segment. I think my friend Dennis Prager wrote a whole book trying to answer this exact question. But a few things that I think hit the sweet spot for, for left-wing hatred. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, with regard to Israel, it's the one Jewish state. And I think the left, there is this pull towards secularism and away from Judeo-Christian values. And that includes mm -hmm. Jewish values. That's Ju that, the, the Judeo part. I think there's a pull there. Um, I think there is a pull to frame Israel as the oppressor and as other Arabs in the region as victims. In the left, the right. victim narrative really registers with the left at this time, uh, and I think they see that in Israel. Not to mention Israel's more free, something that the, there's always a totalitarian streak on the left, and Israel's a much more free place. They're a much more capitalist place. There's, of course, a socialist pull on the left as well, uh, and they're kind of winners. They kind of are, they, they, they punch above ah. their weight class. They have a lot of parties, and they've got great technology, and they've got, they're kind of they're they're on top of their stuff, and that's something that that bothers the haters. And now, of course, they're so associated with Trump. I think they like Trump more than we do here in the United States. And now it's just totally over. Just throw up your hands. There's no hope. 
You make a great point. I, I speculated on that winter portion that you that you talk about. But when I was in Israel, it was during the Trump administration, and even leftists in Israel loved him. I think that's an, an amazing encapsulation, and uh, that's why you're doing so well. Alex Marlowe with Breitbart News. Everybody, go get a copy of his new book right now, and you can find it wherever books are sold. We've got the cover up there for you. And make sure you tune in at 9.30 Eastern tonight with the America First Rally with Matt Gates and Mark Miller Green that we will air here, as, as Congressman Gates just told you, on RBTV. And thank you for joining me tonight. Thanks to everyone here at your new home for Real News, Real America's Voice, live from Studio 6B. Up next, hug your children, love your God, go boldly now and live the truth.